Let's dive right in. We're going to pick up where we left off, but it's going to be a little bit different today. As we continue in this series, The Identity Crisis, is looking at what is the identifiable markers of the church today. As we've discovered and as we've talked about, it's almost unrecognizable what the church today is compared to the church of 100 years ago, compared to the church of 500 years ago, and really compared to the church of 2,000 years ago at the time of Christ. Because the differentiation between the church today and the church back then is now, we are now more global than we've ever been before. In fact, there are things that can take place and can happen, and within minutes, they happen around the world, in minutes we know about it. That was not always the case. As I, guys, I was talking to you guys about, when you talk about the great awakenings that took place in America, which were incredible revivals, it wasn't until years after the revival that they really realized all the different things that had taken place, as all the data was coming in. But within moments today, we know everything that's going on. I mean, what I'm hearing about stories in Afghanistan from people I'm connected with, or the Philippines, or different parts of the world, Australia even, I mean, Canada, if you consider that a place. I mean, things like that, of things that are happening around the world that are incredible, and we get excited about it. Here's the thing. We often lose sight of the fact that we're like, man, we hear these great and mighty and powerful things that are going on around the world, and we're always like, why not here? You think about that? We read these old revivals, and we're like, why not here? Why not now? I mean, there was a revival that took place in Missouri not that long ago down to Smith in a little town of about 500 people, little assemblies of God church. They've now moved that church up to Kansas City area. But I mean, it was just people were flocking in, and it's like, well, why not there? And it happened there. And we ask these questions, and here's the problem. And this is the part that we, we get lost in. We read the book of Acts. We see incredible things taking place, right? We're comparing our everyday life and walk with God to highlight reels of somebody else's. Let me explain. Okay? If you were ever an athlete, okay, and here is the litmus test to see if you were an athlete that I am saying you competed in athletics in any way, shape, or form. Didn't mean you were good. Okay? Because otherwise... This doesn't work for me because I wasn't an athlete then. I wasn't good at anything except picking up heavy things. I was pretty good at that. But, but what would happen is you'd start going and you're doing something and you're feeling pretty good about it. And then all of a sudden you come up to somebody who's better. And you're like, dang, man, they're good. I wish I was that good. You could say this in, in, in music, right? Vocally. Overnight success. All of a sudden they come onto the scene. They're just amazing. It's incredible. And the part we miss it's all the behind-the-scenes stuff and the years of preparation and progress. What we read in the book of Acts are event after event after event. But do you realize that sometimes there are days, weeks, months, and years between those events that took place? And we think that it just should be happening all the time like that, but that's not necessarily the case. And you see, the reason we're having trouble with this it's because information overload is in our face all the time. We're seeing stuff all the time, and we're comparing our everyday walk with somebody else's moment of arrival. So, like, let me give you examples of this, okay? Kenneth Hagin, most of you guys are probably familiar with him. He was the founder of the Bible school that I, I went to. He was the founder of the Word of Faith movement. He was a faith teacher. Considered by most, he was a prophet. He was considered by most as one of the greatest Bible teachers, preacher, expounder of truth when it comes to Christianity and things like that. And what most people don't realize is that at one point in his life, he pastored a church. 
And he pastored a church in which people were like, are you really going to preach about that again? Are you really going to talk about this? When are you going to take us someplace deeper? He used to joke, and he said, you know, God, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. He, he pastored, I think it was around four years, stuff like that. Like, they always wanted somebody else. And we're sitting there like, this is Kenneth Hagin. How could you possibly want somebody else? Do you guys realize that most people would not be satisfied if Jesus was the pastor of their church? They'd find something to complain about, right? But, I mean, we think about that. And now we bring it into to what we're talking about, this identity crisis. Why is it the church is so unidentifiable today compared to what it was? And there's a number of reasons. We're beginning to dig into this. And as we, we, we get here, we've got to ask this question. What does a Christian look like? What does a Christian talk like? How does a Christian act in every phase of his life? We've read 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If that's true, then you and I are different. We're not the same. We should not sound the same. We should not look the same. At times, we shouldn't even smell the same. Because there should be a clear distinction between us and the world. But we as the church has done our best to muddy those waters. We have not tried to make the world more holy. We have tried to make the holy more worldly. We have continued to move down this progressive path of trying to get people to come. Trying to get people to hear. If they just hear the gospel, we'll do anything. If they'll just hear the gospel. But what compromises do we make in those moments? And the thing is, is people want you to compromise. They want you to just get along. I was having a conversation this week, okay? Every day is an opportunity. I tell you that all the time. And I live that in my life. I'm always looking for opportunities to pivot any conversation I'm having. And it doesn't mean that it happens. But I'm looking for those opportunities. So, our copier repairman came in. Which may be for the last time. Okay? He worked on the machine for 20 minutes and talked to me for an hour and a half. So, he's like, man, I gotta go. I got calls to do. And I'm like, well, I'll go with you. I got nothing going on today. That wasn't true. And here's the thing. We begin to talk of these different things going around the world now he is a believer in a higher power he is a believer in man-made religion that it exists and he doesn't like it and he we're going through all this we're just beginning to talk and talk about all sorts of different things and he's making these truth claims he's saying well you know I, I know where you stand I'm like how do you know where I stand I haven't told you where I stand he's like well given what you do I'm like you don't know anything about me He's like, he looked at me and he said, I don't want to offend you, but and I stopped him and said, his name's Monty, he's a good guy. I said, Monty, you're going to try pretty hard to offend me, okay? He's like, but you know, I think Catholicism is like a cult. And I said, Monty, high five, brother. We're on the same page, buddy. And he's, he's just like, he's like, the thing is, is this is all man-made. And I said, well, how do you know that? He's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how do you know it's man-made? And he's like, well, because we don't really know who God is and, and what he's done. I mean, there's God, but, you know, you call him God, they call him Allah. Other people call him other things. You know, it's the same God. I'm like, you know what you just described, Monty? He's like, what's that? A man-made religion. You just made it. Congratulations. You fit right in. He's looked at me for a minute, and he's like, well, that's not what I mean. I'm like, I, you don't know what you mean. He's an intelligent man. You see, the thing is, is we're like, what separates 
all these churches. He goes in all sorts of different churches and schools and all sorts of different places. What, we're all alike to him. We're all the same. And he doesn't like any of them. Why would you? I just, we were talking about this this morning, but, but uh, the ELCA has just made a bishop, a transgender bishop, over the northeast region of the, uh, or northwest region, I should say. Washington, all of that, and nobody here is shocked to hear any of this stuff, right? And why is that? Well, are they a church? Sure, by the purest definition you can get, they're a church. But are they following the mandates of Scripture? You see, we come back to this, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is subject to the law of God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. See, this is Romans 8. If you read all of Romans, it's kind of like a mandate to the church of what we should act like. The thing is, is are we being carnally minded, or are we being spiritually minded? When I'm talking about Brother Hagin, I'm just using him as an example. But here's a man that, honest to God, if, if you never sat through some of his ministry, he was an incredible man. He had a lot of good things to say. I didn't agree with everything that he ever spoke, just like you may not agree with everything that I ever speak, or we don't agree with everything that everybody else ever speaks. But we all love one another, and we all get along, and we can have our disagreements, and that's okay. But at some point, the man who had thousands of people coming to his crusades and his meetings he traveled around the country doing all these thousands of people saved and built up there's 25,000 ministers around the world today because of the work of this man what he started somebody didn't like what he had to say on a Sunday morning and wanted him gone isn't that crazy to think about why is that because we're carnally minded you see we live in a culture where it's all about me it's all about what I want I don't care what somebody else needs. It's all about what I want. To be carnally minded is death. Well, there's a sickness going around. What do we do? Well, we better hunker down. We better hide out. We better do all this stuff. What happens if we just follow what Scripture says? Well, the economy's going to crap. We better just really buckle down and watch your P's and Q's and all of that. Those are all good things to do. Don't misunderstand me. But what about what Scripture says? Oh, I just heard so-and-so's got cancer. Good. What does Scripture tell you to do in that? What's your response? But we don't do it. So-and-so had a, a sibling pass away or whatever. Good. What do we do? What's our response? There's a crisis in North Korea. Good. What's our biblical response? In other words, we've got to be less carnally minded, more spiritually minded, and start thinking, what would Jesus do? It all comes back to that. What would Jesus do in the moment that somebody stands up and says, I'm transgender and I'm now the bishop over the church of Jesus Christ? What would Jesus do? Make a whip. It's not the same. That's the thing. Everything gets lumped together, but it's not. There's a separation. And that's what we were talking about last week. Is you've got this separation. In fact, I want to draw this out for you. I, want, I, I plan this out. When you think about this, when God created everything, what did he create? Created people. Okay? Hopefully this works. I can always tell when my kids have been up here playing with it. One, there's scribbles everywhere. That's Josiah. And the other thing, the lids don't get back on the markers very well. There we go. Anyway. He created people, but what else did he create? He created angels. This one's not much better. What else did he create? Oh, we got a pile of them here. We're going to find a good one yet. Put that there. Oh, Hey, we're, we're making progress. Created animals. He created the earth. He created everything, right? What were these things called? 
primarily these two here. This is the family of God. If you came through on Wednesday nights and we're talking about in Genesis, the Garden of Eden was what? The domain of God and his family. Angels, all created beings were there in the gardens where the throne of God on the mountain of the north. All of these different things we went through it. I'm not going to go through it again. And then something happened. Sin happened. What happened with sin? Sin now created a separation between the spiritual and the physical. So now the family of God has been changed, right? Because now we don't have the interaction on the spiritual side that they once had. You guys follow me? Some of y'all look confused. If you hadn't been here when I taught through Genesis, that would be part of it. Basically what I'm saying is, one, my theory is, this is my theory, when Lucifer fell, you see it in Genesis chapter 3, it wasn't a snake that was talking, that it was a description of him, the serpent, because we see it all through scripture, that's the moment he fell, they weren't surprised to see a talking snake, because it wasn't a talking snake, it was somebody that they saw regularly and had interaction with, just like the other created beings in the garden, there, now you're up to speed, so they're all there together, now we've got a people group that has now been separated from the spiritual. So these people, you fast forward a little bit, God does everything. He separates the people groups now, doesn't he? What he separated them to? It was Jew and Gentile. Because you were one or the other. The chosen people of God or not. Okay? Now these people could act like those people. And these people could become like these people. There are two ways to do it. For a Jew to become like a Gentile, what do they have to do? Quit keeping the commandments. Quit doing what God did. By then you were breaking the covenant, you could leave. When they, you talk about the ten lost tribes in, the, in, in Israel, you got the northern tribes and the southern tribes. That's a misnomer. Because what happens is when they get the nation split up into two parts, those who wanted to worship Yahweh the way that God desired to be worshipped in Jerusalem went south. And those in the south who didn't want to worship Yahweh went north and worshipped all the other things. Okay? So, you've got these two groups. So a Jew could go and act like a Gentile, like the Philistines or, or any of the other ones, just by quit following the covenant. But a Gentile, in order to become like a Jew, had to leave their nation, had to forsake their foreign gods, had to enter in and keep the commandments, had to circumcise themselves, all of these things they had to do, and then they were to be treated like a natural-born Jew, just as if they had always been. So we see this separation of people. And then what happens when we get to the new covenant? They're no longer separated, right? Because now the covenant is not with a people group. It is with the saved. Those who are born again. We just talked about that this morning with, with, with communion. It's the celebration of what Jesus did. Do this as often as you can in remembrance of me, of remembrance of that covenant that he cut. But now you've got saved, and what else do you have as a byproduct of that? You have the unsaved. I know, this is super profound, isn't it? But we always see the separating that is going on. Separation between these groups and these groups. It just keeps trickling down. No matter what we do, there's always a separation. They're never the same. I was joking with Leslie. I don't know where is she in the nursery today? Okay. Leslie was talking about it at an event. If you guys can't keep up on the gender stuff, neither can I, neither can most people. Every time I turn around, there's a new one added. But you've got the binary and non-binary thing that's going on, and this just happened at the fort where she works, where they, this person comes in, and he said, oh, yes, man. He's like, well, 
I'm non-binary, and he didn't even know what that meant, but it was explained, it was polite, it was a good, you know, experience with that, and I said, you know what's ironic about that? In their attempts to not have two genders of male and female, now you have binary and non-binary, and I went to public school, but one plus one still equals two where I come from. It was in Nebraska, I could be wrong. I just think it's ironic. Anyway, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Not a thing, I just like that story. So back to the saved and unsaved thing. It's the separation of God's people and not God's people. These are not the children of God. Who are they? You are of your father. Right. Okay. God's people, not God's people. God's people, not God's people. Started with all God's people. You guys with me? Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Just bear with me for a little bit. Verse 1, it says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may be, not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down stronghold, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What are they after? The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is the number one thing that will separate the carnal mind from the spiritual mind. Knowing who God is, who I am in relationship to Him, how I worship Him, and ultimately who is my enemy. These are the four questions we've been undertaking. We talked about who God is. We could spend months on that. Because, again, the conversation I had just this week is, comes down to is who is God. Because I don't care what your opinion is. And I don't care what you think he reacts. I care how he has revealed himself to mankind. And it's through one thing. It's found in Scripture. Your experience, albeit important, is not the final arbiter in the existence of who God is. So if you believe God is this vengeful monster getting ready to strike lightning against everybody, you would be incorrect. If you believe God is just nothing but a fairy godmother who's willing to give you anything if you wish and click your heels together and stand on one foot and all of the other stuff, that's fine, but you would be incorrect because that is not how he has revealed himself. And we have to get to the point that we begin to understand exactly who God is. And then we have to understand who we are in relationship with him. And the separation of the two people groups, we've got this here, Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, in his law he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So we talked about these two people groups, right? We've got them here. You've got the unsaved group. Not that. Go to the next one. There you go. Unsaved. They're separated from God. They're sinning against God. And they're scorning at the truth of God. And then you've got the saved group, which is separated to God. They serve only God. And no matter where they are in life, they're searching for truth. Do you realize that at some point you had it wrong about who God was? Do you realize at some point today that some of your theology is probably incorrect? But we're always in a quest for truth. We're always looking for knowledge to understand who God is. And so with all of that being said, we've got to begin to understand the separation of the people. You've got Jew and Gentile now into one. How are they into one? Through Christ. That's the component. 
did Jesus come and die so that all could be in heaven? Yes. Did Jesus come and die guaranteeing that all would be in heaven? There's a difference in the words. And the answer is no. Did Jesus come and die only for those that he selected to be in heaven? No, not according to Scripture. You can see how we just move some words around, we change a few things, it quickly changes the meaning of something. Words have lost their meaning because they can mean anything. When I was growing up, you know what ratchet meant? It was a tool. That's not what it means now. I still don't know what fleek means. That on fleek, in fleek, out of fleek, I don't know. Yeah, nobody else does either. You've got to be younger than we are. Yeah, they're all back there like he's, they're all back there, he's so dumb. How does he not know? We have a separation of the people. Now, when we get to the saved part, do you realize that that too gets separated? Now, let's look at Matthew chapter 25. We're going to see something here. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 31. All of these are passages you should be very familiar with. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you, for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous will say to him, saying, Lord, well, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer, saying, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Now, let's stop for a minute. We often read this and we often stop. We're not going to go too super explanatory on this. But we see these things, and these are all good things to do. So we've got a lot of moral missions which we're going to feed, we're going to talk, we're going to help. But that's not what this is talking about. Because it says, in at least uh, my brethren, and as much as you did it to my brethren. Who is his brethren? It's not just anybody. You did it to me. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you curse, and the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they also will answer him saying, Lord, well, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister you? And he answered and said, surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this is interesting because we've got the separation of the sheep and goats. And if you're familiar with any prophetic type ministry or teaching, you've heard these things of that when the time comes, you're going to stand before the throne of God. God is going to separate essentially his people from not his people. But these people are confused. Because both groups ask the same question. Well, when did we see you? And when did we do this? They're asking the exact same question. The separation comes through, ultimately, is what? Well, one group must be saved. One group must not be. Because it's not these things. You see, it is you're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Not by good works, but to good works. Right? There's a separation there. Can you do good works and not be saved? Sure. Absolutely. But the motivation behind this is this is a byproduct, an overflow of who we are. The separation is coming through people who are saved, and it seems as if people who thought they might be saved. In other words, 
they might be in the church. They might be doing good things. They're giving money. They're going to the poor. They're clothing them. They're feeding them. They're doing whatever. But are they really? You see this in other places where he talks about, like, well, Lord, we prophesied in your names, and we laid hands on the sick in your name. And he says, get away from me. I never knew you. You guys see the difference there? There's a distinction. So we have a separation that takes place again. Because it's not just saved and unsaved. That is simple enough. How do you know if somebody's born again? You really don't. But we judge by the fruit. You should begin to see a transformation in a person's life. I've told you different stories. I'm not going to go to all of them again. Different stories of which you see, I've told you about people that I've either led to Christ or I've discipled in one way or another or had happened before I got there, and they are not the same person. So you've got saved and unsaved, but do you realize that there is this distinction given in the saved. Now that might sound weird. Because the reason it sounds weird is we think, well, we're all saved, we get in. That's a true statement. Because what you do has no bearing on your place with God. You can't get more righteous. And you also can't get less righteous. You either are righteous or you are not. But there are other components to this. Now, I want to go to Mark chapter 4. This is the parable of the soils. And I've talked about this before. And I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. But you begin to see these distinctions. In Mark chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him. So they got into the boat, and he sat in on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And he taught them many things by parables. And when he said to them, uh, he went teaching. Listen, behold, verse 3. A sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured, and some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Now, you guys have heard people use this in reference to money. This is not talking about money. So let me explain what's going on here. He's giving an example of four different types of soil and how they scattered seed. You have to remember, this is a very agrarian culture. They were farmers. The average rate of return for every seed that was planted was ten seeds in return. So they got a tenfold return. So thirty was really good. Three times the normal. Sixty and hundred was even better. Most farmers would take that. So what they would do is they'd go out there and they cast a seed. He always used parables in, in language that they would understand. We would probably use them in a more technologically advanced way if we were creating these. We use our own examples. That's what these were. And so as he gave these, he said there were four soils. And guess what? The seed was sown, and it had four different responses. Okay? Verse 9, he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and do not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So this is important. The sower sows the word. What is the word? Always this. Okay? So what are they sowing? So now we know what the seed is. It's the word. Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. This is a spiritual attack. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground. 
who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure for only a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. Again, so now he's given the end result in an explanatory way of what these four soils do. But Mark doesn't give all of the story. Mark's giving Peter's version of the story. You can also find it in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 13. We're going to go over to Luke 8 because Luke 8 goes a little deeper into some of the meaning here because we're looking for the distinguishing factors among the people because we know the word was sown and the soils are what? They're the individuals. So let's look at this. Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled, trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured. And some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up, and it choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he heard these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him, saying, Well, what does this parable mean? He said, To you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it has been given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. Here we go. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Same thing. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. You guys catch that? So the seed was sowed on the wayside soil. And they heard it, and they liked it, and they're, they're like, man, this is good. Well, what happens? The birds come and devour the seed. Why? If they believe, they'll be saved. So now you have the wayside that's over here. This is soil number one. You guys got that? Let's go to soil number two. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy and these have no root who believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. So the stony soil. Now, we see it very clearly that this, they're unsaved here, but what about here? I'd say they're born again, wouldn't you? They receive it with joy. They believe the word. So the stony soil are saved folk. Okay? Let's go on. Verse 14. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Again, does it tell you that they're unsaved? No, but Luke made a point to say that. So here we've got the thorny soil. And the saved group. And I don't think it takes somebody with an advanced degree in biblical interpretation to figure out the last one. The ones that, verse 15, that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. This is the good soil. All four soils are used in the exact same illustration, separating, first of all, the saved from the unsaved. So is it too far of a stretch to consider that all the parents, if you don't understand this one, you won't understand any of them, follow this same metric? But they were all soil. And the same seed was given. But the results were not the same. The things of life, the carnal mind, while they may be in, 
has kept them from doing anything for the Lord. Now, it's very possible they're going to stand up, well, God, but I did this and I did that. He's like, well, yeah, that's great. It's kind of like the verse where it says, you come near me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. We live in a world of instant gratification. If it's not the way I like it, then I just don't want it. We, we pretend that we have prayer services, but they're really gossip sessions. We, we're always constantly doing that because we don't get what we want. But that's not what they did. Read the book of Acts. What did they do? They gave up all to follow Christ. It cost them all to follow Christ. I mean, it would be a completely different world if we were under intense persecution. That if you came to Christ, it cost you absolutely everything, including possibly your life. There would be no more wishy-washiness. You're in or you're out. Make your choice. But that's not the world we live in. And because we don't live in that world, it allows us to be right here. Now, remember, this is Jesus talking. He's talking about people way back then, too. You see, you can come and be a carnal Christian. You can be born again and just allow all those other things to keep you from producing fruit to maturity. But should you? We should all strive to be in the good soil. But what is the difference? The difference is, is we not only have to know who we are in Christ, in relationship to Him, but we also need to know whose we are. And that's important. Let's look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So who is he talking to? Born again people. Whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Whose are you? You are God's. Your body is not your own. Your spirit is is not your own. It's no different if you go out and buy a brand new pickup and you want to spray paint it green, it's yours. Do whatever you want to. Doesn't make any difference because it belongs to you. Will people mock you for it? Probably. I may be one of them. But it's yours. Whatever belongs to you, you own it, you can do with it what you want. But when you realize that my life no longer belongs to me that means I can't do with it what I want that's the separation you see when it stops becoming all about us and it starts becoming all about him it will drive you to your knees in repentance because we live in a world today where it is all about us and what we want you know who acts that way? children there are a lot of children in the body of Christ today. I don't mean little kids like this. I mean grown adults that should know better, but they've never brought fruit to maturity. So they live in this world where it's all about me. It's all about what I want. You know, what she was praying this morning is about leading to repentance. Sometimes we have to repent. We've lost sight of who we are and whose we are. Because if your life is not your own, it's kind of like if you have a job. You go to work, what do you do? Whatever the boss says, right? It's his business, he started it, you do what you're told, go and do it, smile about it, pretend you like it, okay? I mean, if it was fun, they wouldn't have to pay you to go. You know, so, I mean, but, but it's like, okay, God, what do you have for me today? In other words, when the coffee machine's getting fixed, and there's an opportunity to pivot a conversation, again, I'm giving you a 30-second version of that hour-and-a-half conversation, 
how do you pivot that conversation? What do you do? My life is not my own. Did I have other things I needed to be doing besides bothering Monty and slowing him down? Yes. But I saw the opportunity that day. Next time he comes back, will it be there? Maybe not. I don't know. But you continue on. Look at Romans chapter 14. We're going to read through a few verses here. Verse 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Do you realize that we don't really believe this? Because we say, if we die, we die to the Lord. And if we live, maybe. Because we treat God as an accessory in our lives. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Whom am I in relationship to God? I'm his son. Whose am I? I am his. It's Christ that lives in me. Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you realize how profound a statement that is? To be called the son of God? It's so profound and we just, we just completely take it for granted. We'll just go and do what we want and live how we want and drink what we want and eat what we want. And yet, we're, Lord, it's, we belong to you. What do you want? We don't even ask that question. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now that's interesting. You notice John's a little excited here. He says, we should be called children of God. Exclamation point. Why? Because the manner of love that the Father poured out on us. Then he goes in, he says, the world doesn't know us. They didn't know him, they don't know us. What you do and you believe makes zero sense. It didn't have to. When he is revealed, we'll be like him. Everyone who has this hope does what? Purifies himself, just as he is pure. So who's responsible for that? We are. See, this is the carnality. We've allowed it. We think if we're morally good, we're on the right track, and maybe we are. But there are morally good people that are bound for hell. When we were out in Hastings, we were dealing with a bunch of homeschool students that were out there, and they would have these things where they could recite verses and chapters of the Bible because they had these contests and all of that. But you'd ask them, no, what does it mean? They had no idea. And I had to explain to these parents and these parents of these college kids, I said, never mistake morality for spirituality. A well-behaved child can be damned to hell just like a well-behaved child. We have to get past the point where we're like, okay, well, we're being good. We're not saying bad words. We're not drinking stuff we should. We're not doing these things. That's great. No, it's how we respond, carnally minded or spiritually minded. Because who I am in relationship with God is a son. And because of that, whose am I? That one right there. I made it. I own it. He'll do what I say or else. Yeah, that's right. Every once in a while, he bucks the system, and i got to remind him. I own you. Yeah, true. No Minecraft. Can't argue with that. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, 
though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Now let's talk about this. Again, we often read way too fast. We're talking about an heir. How does one become an heir? You are inheriting. Somebody has died. It belonged to somebody else. You're now the heir of it. As long as you're a child, you are just like the child in the house, and they are just like the slave in the house, the servant. There's no distinction because none of it belongs to you. It all belongs to your father. Okay? So it doesn't make it, there's no distinction. Because you're under guardians and steward until the appointed time of the Father. Until he releases it to you, you don't get to call the shot. It doesn't belong to you. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Do you guys realize how profound that is? We take these for granted. We've heard them all our lives. And we take them for granted. Because we're just like, well, I'm an heir of God. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in my mortal body. I mean, all of these verses that have become nothing more than slogans in our life, we don't live that way. We might be morally pure, but spiritually we're bankrupt because we're carnally minded. We do not respond in a biblical way. We do not respond in a spiritual way. We have, should be and have to get to the point that we're good soil because as of right now, we're all lumped into the same group. There's a clear separation by God. We take everything for granted. And it is time for us as the church to repent. So I've asked the worship team if you guys will come on up. We're going to take a moment because we've got some work to do individually in our lives. But we also need to be praying for our country. It starts in our community. With the people that we work with, the people that we live around, our neighbors, whatever. And we pray for them. But we're just going to take a minute. As they play, we're going to just stand up. And let's do that. Let's stand up. We're just going to worship God. We're going to bow our hearts before Him. As she prayed this morning that it is time to repent. None of us are above that. Every day we should be repenting and crying out to the Lord, I'm sorry for what I've made this. Because it's not just who you are, it's whose you are. Go ahead, guys. Open it up for a minute. If anybody needs prayer for anything, and you want someone to pray with you, I just ask you to come up. We're just going to take a minute and just worship God. But if you want prayer for anything, just come on up. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister. You don't need to come up if you don't want to. Lift up your hands. People around you pray. It doesn't matter. You don't need me to pray for you. You need people to pray for you, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And so if you see somebody with their hands up, let's gather around them and let's pray. We just worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. Cindy, you need prayer? Okay. thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to worship you. 
And I thank you, Lord, that you are quickening our hearts, that we will just be more like you. That you're showing us where we're short, Lord, that where we need to rise up. And I thank you, Lord, that we will not allow our pride and we will not allow any circumstances to keep us from following you in every part of our lives. That it's all about you. That you are all that we need. And so, Lord, we just glorify you in this place. We thank you, Father, for what you continue to do. And I thank you, Lord, that you are just putting a fire in our bellies to go out and minister the truth of the gospel. I thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Yep. We're going to pray for uh, Derek and Kayla. His father just passed away. We've been praying for him. Some of you guys know. I know some of you have been praying. But Lord, we just lift them up to you. And I thank you that you're just giving them peace. As they walk through this new territory, it was an unexpected loss, Lord. I thank you that you're giving them peace while they're hurting. I thank you, Lord, that you're ministering hope to them. And I thank you, Father, that you are there with them each and every day. Lord, that this will be an opportunity to draw them closer to you. To walk in the fullness of who you are. And I thank you, Lord, that each of us has an opportunity to just show that love and compassion to them as they navigate these waters. Lord, we just lift up everybody who's out that's maybe hurting right now. Whatever's going on, that they'll find fullness and hope in you. And not the things of this world and not the mechanisms of this world, Lord, but only in you.